The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. From Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, Paul writes, I want to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Pray with me. Father, Son, and Spirit, We are in your presence here by your grace. You are kind to gather us this morning to give us life and breadth and pull us together to this place to hear from you, to hear from your word. So Father, I pray my my earnest hope from you is that you would speak in ways that open our minds and hearts and place us in Christ if we don't know Him. Fasten us more firmly to Him if we do, banking all of our hope on a righteousness that does not come from ourselves and does not come from the obedience of the law, but rather comes from Christ Himself by faith. A righteousness that comes from God to us through Christ. To bank all of our hope on that. Lord, would you this morning work and make that happen? Some of us here don't know you, Lord. Would you open our eyes and show us a great Savior, Jesus, who can make us righteous before you? And many of us, Lord, do know you and struggle with banking all of our hope on his righteousness. We lean towards our own. Be kind and gracious this morning with us, Lord, and pry us away from that and cement us to Him. Lord, make that come to pass through Your Word. Give clarity to my expressions. Give all of us the ability to concentrate. To open our minds and our hearts and speak by Your Scriptures to the glory of Christ and for the good of Your church, I pray. In Christ's name, Amen. Dealing with God's law, as we have been over these last number of months, as we've been through the book of Deuteronomy, can be a hard thing. It can be hard in the sense of of complexity. It's difficult sometimes because there is a lot of theology that we have to wrestle with and we have to think through things and be careful and and reckon what it is that we're reading and how to properly transition from that to our modern world and what it means that Christ has come. There, there's a lot of complexity in that, so it can be hard in that sense. But more than that, it can be hard because of the intrinsic nature of what the law is. The law is... God's instruction to us of what He's like and of what we are supposed to be like and what He expects of us and requires of us. And that law should then, and and it often does, 
just crush us. Just break us. That can be hard. Shows us, here's, here's God's standard and here's how far short we fall of that and it breaks us. It kicks out all the supports from beneath our life and leaves us helpless and sometimes a little hopeless, which can be crushing and hard as it tears us down, but should also be good. It should be good. Because it should set us off to running and looking for hope somewhere outside of us, because there isn't any in here. It should cause us to look for some hope and some help somewhere else. And as we see some of the character of God in the text, even in the law, it should cause us to look for hope and help in Him, causing us ultimately to run to the One who is the end of the law for our joy, Christ. That dynamic is, is at work constantly in the law. And, and over the last months, I think you've probably seen it every single week, there is a, a crushing aspect of the law, a pointing aspect of the law that then leads to hope found through the law, somewhere beyond the law in Christ. That same dynamic is at work every week, and it, it's the same thing going on again this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 9. We're looking at chapter 9, and we're going to see in this chapter the commandment-breaking and the covenant-breaking nature of the people of God. The habitual commandment and covenant-breaking of the people of God. It emphasizes our utter lack of personal righteousness. And it shows us something of God and gives us hope. Something marvelous in God that should be hope for us. That same dynamic is this morning in Deuteronomy 9. Let me read the passage, then I'll pass back through it to make sure we understand it and some of where it goes for next week before making a couple of observations. Let me read Deuteronomy chapter 9. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourselves. Cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess this land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. 
Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. When I went up the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain forty days and forty nights, and neither ate bread nor drank water. And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain, out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. At the end of forty days and forty nights, the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant, Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people, whom you have brought from Egypt, have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them, and they have made themselves a metal image. Furthermore, the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned and came down from the mountain. And the mountain was burning with fire. And the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made yourselves a golden calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took hold of the two tablets and threw them out of my two hands and broke them before your eyes. Then I lay prostrate before the Lord as before, forty days and forty nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all the sin that you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you so that he was ready to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. And I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. And then I took the sinful thing, the calf that you had made, and burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small until it was as fine as dust. And I threw the dust of it into the brook that ran down from the mountain. At Taborah also, and at Massah, and at Kibrath Hatavah, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and take possession of the land that I have given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God and did not believe Him or obey His voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. So I lay prostrate before the Lord for these forty days and forty nights because the Lord had said He would destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, destroy not your people, and your heritage, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people, or their wickedness, or their sin. Lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. For they are your people and your heritage whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. The word of the Lord. That's Deuteronomy chapter 9. And and if you were to look right ahead to chapter 10, you would probably notice some sort of a heading that says something about the new stone tablets. And that should indicate that I'm, I'm stopping in the middle of the story. 
In a lot of ways, chapter 9 connects right into chapter 10, and, and the, the whole story is in these two chapters, but it's really long, so I have to stop somewhere. So some of these things that are touched on in this chapter will be finished up in, in next week's discussion of chapter 10. This morning we look at 9, and there is a significant lesson contained in chapter 9 itself. We want to see what it has to say to us. It begins with God's statement that sets the stage for his people to enter the promised land. Now's the time. They are, they're here, right at the, at the gate of the land, if you will, right at the river Jordan, and, and now's the time for them to cross over, to dispossess these great and mighty nations, the ones that were mentioned back in chapter 7. And all of them together make a, an insurmountable obstacle for Israel. They're a numerous and strong people. They live in numerous and strong cities. And besides that, the sons of Anak live there, a mighty people that, as the text cleverly says, of whom you have heard it said, who can stand against these guys? I wonder who it was that said that. Well, it was their fathers 38 years before that said that. The words here in these first three verses are echoing what we've already seen in chapter 1, recalling the first time the people got to this point. Back at Kadesh Barnea, God had brought them to very much a different geographic location, but the same situation, brought them right to the door of the land and said, I will go over before you. And they'd sent the spies in and they'd come back and said, man, there are too many people who are too strong in too tall, too tall and mighty of cities. And besides that, the Anakim are there. Let's not go. And so they turned back. This is take two. And lest history repeat itself, Moses is trying to do something here that's going to muster up in them faith that will then lead to obedience. Lead them to cross over rather than turn away. So to do that, he reminds them of something. God, through Moses, is reminding them of something. Verse 3, know this, the one who is going over before you as a consuming fire, who is that? It's me. The emphasis being on God. He's the one going over. Rather than exactly on what he's doing, he is essential to this. I'm going to go over. I'm going to be a consuming fire. I will deliver them. And you will take the land. Both. You have to go over there and do it, but I'm the one who's going to carry the, the, the battle for you. I'm going to go in front. I'll be the consuming fire that burns up your enemies. Moses tells them this, God tells them this, so as to stir up in them faith and get them to move ahead. That's the main agenda in chapters 9 and 10. But in chapter 9, what he particularly focuses on is, and just to be clear about this, don't be confused as to why I'm going to do this. I am going to go over before you. Follow me, come. I'm going to go over before you. But just to be clear as to why I'm doing that or why I'm not doing that, by no means should you be confused, verse 4 and following. There's a tension that develops here in 4 and following. They have to go. And if they go in obedience, they will be blessed by God's accompanying them. We've seen that a bunch of times already, but perhaps a little more carefully I could say, Not just that obedience leads to blessing, but obedience experiences blessing, but does not earn it. That's the point being clarified in this passage. If you obey me and step out and cross the Jordan, you will experience my blessing. But just to be clear, it is not an earned blessing. 
Do not say in your heart, after the Lord has thrust them out, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has done this. It's not. It's because of their wickedness. He's passing judgment on them, as we saw back in chapter 7. And so that we don't miss it, verse 5 says almost exactly the same thing. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you getting the land. It's because of their wickedness. And then he adds in, and also because God wants to be faithful to his promise to Abraham. And so that we really don't miss it, verse 6 says it a third time. After you've taken possession of this land, know therefore that it is not because of your righteousness. You don't have any. You are a stubborn people. So, is, is it because of my righteousness that the Lord is giving me this land? No. But isn't he sort of pleased with my obedience and therefore as a reward giving me this land? No. It's not. It's not. It's not. You, in fact, are remarkably stubborn. Stiff-necked. Refusing to bow the neck or turn the head to listen. And then he goes on to establish that point, to prove it. Verse 7, remember and do not forget. That language should sound familiar to us because in the previous chapter, chapter 8, what we are to remember and not forget is the nature of God. Here, it is remember and don't forget the nature of people. Remember and do not forget. You've been in rebellion from the very beginning. And then he walks Israel through its past. Remember how you provoked the Lord to wrath in the wilderness. From the very day you came out of the land of Egypt until now you have been rebellious against the Lord. And we can recall in our own minds as they certainly could in theirs. They had not even crossed through the Red Sea yet and they were already grumbling against God and complaining about what he'd done. From the very beginning it was nothing but provoking him to wrath. Day after day after day. Even remarkably, this is the context in which the story of the golden calf comes up, even amazingly at Mount Horeb itself. Now, if you read the story of the golden calf in the book of Exodus, it's told differently because it has a different point to it. Not that they're two different stories, the same story with different details emphasized, because in each place, Moses is trying to make a certain point. They, they know the story, and he's telling it here so as to underline certain things. And it exists in our context here as further evidence of the remarkable, hard-hearted, stubborn rebellion of the people. So we're going to walk through this not to catch all the facts, but to catch the main point that Moses is trying to get across here. Even remarkably at Horeb, you showed yourself rebellious against the Lord. And then verse 9 and following, he starts to tell the story. I went up on the mountain, Moses says. Moses goes up to get those stone tablets. We've seen these before in previous chapters. They were the stone tablets on which God himself had written his Ten Commandments. The very basic stipulations of the covenant that he had made with this people. It's going to be elaborated on in following chapters. But he says, here's the very basic requirements. And he writes them down himself after he audibly spoke them to the people from the mountain that was burning and smoking of an ominous cloud, thunder and lightning. I mean, it was an amazing, terrifying, gripping situation. And in chapter 5, the people saw it and it says they were very afraid. And they sent Moses up ahead and said, you go up there, Moses, and you talk to him and find out what he says to us. And we will do whatever he says. 
In chapter 5, God said, that, that is a great attitude. Oh, that it would last. Because he knows it isn't going to make it six weeks. Moses goes up and for 40 days there is intimately communing with God. He's fasting and praying and being taught by God. And he, he is in close fellowship with Him. The mountain's still burning that whole time. Verse 15 makes clear that when he comes back down, the mountain's still burning. For those 40 days, the mountain is still burning. It's like we're standing here in the parking lot of our facility, looking at, where, where are the mountains? Looking at the mountains. And there's still a fire. The same ominous setting. Nothing's changed. And remarkably, three weeks, four weeks, five weeks into this, the people begin to say, hmm, what should we do? I mean, I know we heard the audible voice of God, all million in some of us. We heard the audible voice of God coming out of that burning, amazing image there. And He told us those Ten Commandments. And that was something. But I think we need something else. Aaron, make us a God. Never mind the Second Commandment. Make us a God, Aaron. And Aaron does, amazingly. And they, they make a form, you know, they're going to cast this thing. It involves some construction and some gathering of some material resources. Over time, they're making this. And they make this form and they cast this image. All the while, Moses is up on the mountain praying and fasting and communing with God. It's remarkable. And God, of course, notices it and tells him so, tells Moses, informs him. Verse 12, notice the shift in the pronouns here as God begins to distance himself. You can kind of feel this. If you have like a piece of wood and an axe you're going to split the wood with, you don't whack at it when it's in your hand. You set it down and step back first. That's what God's doing in verse 12. Moses, your people whom you brought out of Egypt have quickly departed from me. He's setting them down and stepping back. And Moses is sensing the gravity of the situation. Runs down the hill, burning as it is, bringing with him the Ten Commandments. They have quickly turned away, broken the covenant, even before the ink's dry, so to speak. He sees the, the calf there, sees the Exodus tells us, he sees the great commotion of the worship surrounding the whole thing. And he says, what have you done? And he throws down the tablets, not because he's angry and he wants to throw something but because he is physically depicting what has spiritually happened. The covenant is broken, and it lies shattered in pieces right there at their feet. As soon as he arrives, it's already broken. You have turned aside quickly, verse 16 says. Then he does several things. He disposes of the calf, but most importantly, he goes to intercede for the people because he is greatly afraid for their very lives knowing that they have aroused the wrath of God and that He burns with hot anger towards them and Aaron. He has great displeasure. He's ready to destroy them because they're evil. But Moses steps in between God and the people and goes and pleads with Him, intercedes for the people before God and says, Oh God, have mercy. Be gracious towards them. Verse 27, overlook their stubbornness and their sin and their wickedness. Same word used to describe the nations in Canaan. 
The nations that are in Canaan that are going to be destroyed for their wickedness and the people of Israel who are stubborn and wicked, they're the same sort of people. And I know you're about to destroy them. Oh God, would you be gracious towards these people? Why? Why why should I be Moses? Well, because, and he offers up a couple of reasons, especially because, think of what people will say about you. They'll say you're weak. Or that you're fickle in your love. They, everybody knows that you've chosen this people as descendants from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and that you made a promise to give them this land and they're going to say that you're a liar. You made a promise and then you changed your mind. You didn't do it. Or maybe they'll say you couldn't do it. So for the sake of your promise and for the sake of your fame, your reputation among the nations, have mercy. Be gracious towards this wicked, stubborn people. And Moses says, he heard me. And he relented. As he did in so many other cases, as verses 22 to 24 point out. This is the one that's gone into in great detail because it perhaps is most alarming, but it is not the only one. He lists off, there's the incident at not just Horeb, but there's the incident at Taberah and Massah and Kibroth Hatavah and also Kadesh Barnea, the first time we were here. Constantly. This is who you are. Just like who they are in Canaan. You are a stubborn people from day one, not a righteous one, arousing him to wrath constantly. So, so don't for a minute even consider that it is by your righteousness that he's going to bring you into this land and give this to you. It's not. Rather, it is because of the amazing, gracious choice of God to bless Period. That's the passage for this morning. And where he's using that, where he's going with it, is he's using it to motivate in them belief that will then lead to obedience. We see some of that in in next week's passage. He picks up on that again. What, What we're going to look at this morning is what he says about us and what he says about God in this passage. Let me summarize it in this sentence. Main point for this morning that I'm then going to break in half. Place no hope in your own righteousness. Place no hope in your own righteousness, but rather hope in the grace of God in Christ. My first observation is going to be the first half of that statement. Place no hope in your own righteousness. Obviously, that comes directly from the steady beat of verses 4, 5, and 6. I'm really not sure I could have said it any more clearly than to repeat it three times in back-to-back-to-back verses. Do not say in your heart, Know this, therefore, it is not because of my righteousness that I'm going to come into possession of the land of rest. Remember and don't forget it. You don't have any righteousness but from day one have been bent against Him. It's really clear. He's confronting here, Moses is confronting the very human tendency. It's not just an Israelite tendency, it's human. To look to ourselves. 
Last chapter, it was a tendency to look to ourselves and at the strength of our own hands and say, look all the things I've provided for myself. Here, it's a tendency to look to self and say, I'm pretty good. I have something that's spiritually commendable in me. I have something to offer. I'm somehow upright or deserving. And therefore, God will respond to me with blessing. The therefore, He'll respond to me with blessing. The therefore is the problem. Trying to connect as, as if God owes me, as if I have something that obligates Him, something that makes me worthy or earns or merits in God's eyes. He may bless, but it is not because I have earned it. Be really clear about that. I haven't earned anything, no blessing whatsoever in life. Moses is clearly using this in a confrontational way. To tear down in them any false confidence or any proud boasting that says, Hey, he's taking from you and giving to me because you're wicked and I'm righteous. Can you see the tendency to do that? Moses saying, No, 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 they're wicked and you're wicked. This is a confrontational piece of this chapter. And we need to hear it as that first. There is a little more. That's the opposite of confrontational. We'll come to that. But we need to hear the confrontation first. Friends, we in no way whatsoever warrant any blessing from God. We have done nothing more than provoked Him to wrath from day one. Period. I mean, we warrant no blessing, especially the great blessing towards which this promised land of rest is pointing. We talk about this repeatedly. The promised land of rest is simultaneously real, geographic, historical place in time. It's, it's a country with real physical bounty, with real physical rest, the deliverance from actual warfare, political peace. It's, it's that while also pointing ahead to some greater, larger rest. That they didn't enter when they just crossed over the Jordan. A spiritual rest that we are to enter in here. Psalm 95, Hebrews 4, if you want to jot some things down and look at them later. It's pointing ahead at something else as well. And so we're not entitled to any blessing. Particularly, we're not entitled to the spiritual rest that God gives people. He gives it. We don't earn it though. So don't be deceived into thinking that He'll give it to you because of your righteousness or that in any way you have deserved it. That's, that's clearly the emphasis that in, backwards and forwards and up and down Moses is trying to work on here. You don't have anything to offer at all. And we need to be really clear about that because there always lives in the human heart a tendency to think, oh, but I have a little bit to offer. At least a little more than that guy does. I'm not so bad. Or maybe I'm, I'm not so good, but I, if I just change this, then I'll be not so bad. It lives in the human heart, and it, we need to be especially clear about that, because it is part and parcel of the theology that surrounds us here in this valley. We need to be clear about that. In no way whatsoever do we contribute to, or merit, or earn, deserve, God's blessing on us. There, there's a, 
a thinking, there's a, a way of looking at things that says, I have some things to do. And if I do them well enough, consistently enough, then God will beyond that meet me with the rest of what I need. But I first have to do my deal. I've got, I've got to perform. I have to, to give my money here and go there and not do this and do this frequently. And if I do that, then God comes in and I'm okay. That's false. It's heresy. Believed, it will lead to your destruction. We need to be really clear about that. The, the peace that you and I, all of us, the peace that we contribute to this is we provoke Him to wrath from the day one. We rebel against Him from the beginning. And maybe we color, color it over with some, some nice behaviors or some smiles or some attempts at, at self-reform. And I'm not saying that we are as bad as we could be. None of us are as bad as we could be. But God is provoked to wrath if we are not perfect in what we do, in what we say, in what we think, and what we feel. If we are not perfect, He is provoked to wrath. I, I don't have anything to contribute that's not tainted and shot through with wrath-provoking sin. It is not by my righteousness, it is not by any of ours righteousness so place no hope in your own righteousness. That's the confrontation piece that Moses is pushing on them and wanting to make very clear. He traces it so many different ways in this passage. You have no hope in that. But there's another piece here that should be, I think, very comforting. And I want to show the comforting by running Moses' approach backwards. Moses says, don't trust in your own righteousness because you have none. That's the confrontation part. But if you run that backwards, you say, I have no righteousness. But don't worry, that's not what your hope is built on. Do you see those two things together? Don't hope in your own righteousness because you don't have any, but you turn that around and you realize, I don't have any righteousness, but don't worry about that. That's not what your hope is built on. It's not the foundation of our hope before God in this world. Let's think about this a little bit. I think that there are many of us, I know myself sometimes, and I talk to many of you, I don't know everybody here, but I talk to many of you about these things, coffee shop in my study, or whatever, and I think there are a number of you that are in this boat with me, that we think, you know, I, I, feel, I feel pretty good about myself today, or this week, or this month. And the reason if I explore why I feel kind of okay, the reason is that I look back over my list of what I think I'm supposed to be and do, and I think I did okay on that list. I read my Bible pretty consistently today, this week, this month. And, and I prayed a good deal, and I didn't doze very much. And when people were, were mean to me, I responded pretty well to that. 
I mean, I didn't snap at anybody, and I, I don't recall at least going around and gossiping about a situation. And I even had a couple of opportunities to share my faith, and I think maybe one person was actually like interested in it, and it seemed to be profitable. So that was a good thing and encouraging. And some people brought some situations to me that required some sacrifice, and I gave some money that was hard to give, but I, but I did. And I, I spent some time that I didn't really have, but I did, and it seemed to be a blessing to them. And I feel pretty good about that. And then next week, I don't really feel that good. Frankly, I feel kind of miserable. Because my quiet times this week, they were non-existent. I stayed up way too late and watched way too much television. And I got up tired. And when I tried a couple times to pray, I fell asleep. And then I, I left home and I was just cranky with people consistently. Not every day, but pretty cranky with people. I yelled at that guy, and I probably should not have said what I did to this other person about that situation. And when the offer came to, to sacrifice, I didn't do that. Because I, I was selfish in that situation. And I really, I, mean, I polished off, you know, three days last week, I polished off the day with internet pornography. I feel cruddy this week. Why is that? I feel good one week and I feel cruddy the next week. Maybe even great one week, a cloud nine, and then in the pits of despair the next week, wondering why I'm such a failure. God must be ready to get rid of me. Probably my family is too, and certainly the church should be if they had any idea about this. Why, why is that? Because in both cases, I'm evaluating myself based on my perception of my own righteousness. Do you see that? That's the important connection here. I feel terrible this week because I have failed to do what should be done. And therefore, I'm a bad person. Now, the little caveat here is that it's not to say that there isn't anything that should be obeyed and done. And that I should want to do that. But what I'm saying is that I feel miserable because I have failed this list. My hope is in my own righteousness. And when I behave what I perceive to be righteously, I feel pretty good about that. And when I behave in a way that I perceive to be unrighteous, I feel pretty bad about that. Both situations point to a problem. I'm hoping in my own righteousness. A great deal of our spiritual despair is because we're evaluating ourselves incorrectly, according to the wrong standard. And we mourn because what we're evaluating is our performance, how well we meet a standard. And this gets worse as you listen to the law preached. Week after week after week after week. Because what you begin to realize is, oh, it's not just about my behavior, it's about my heart. Oh, no. I'm supposed to love Him, actually in the heart, with everything I am, with everything that I have. Why can't I just give 10% of my money and be done with it? 
Oh no, I'm supposed to set the, the discipleship of my children as prime importance in my life? I don't do that. I haven't done that. I'm supposed to make war on every idol that would tear me away? I don't do that. And they keep rising up in my heart. You listen to the law preached week after week after week, and if you're attached to this sort of my value, my significance, my goodness is tied to my righteousness, you're going to start circling the bull because you realize I'm a lot worse than I thought a week ago, which is a lot worse than I thought a month ago. The standard keeps going up and you keep going down. Which is what the law is supposed to do. That's what the law is about, to push the standard up and to push us down, to cause us to look somewhere else other than for our own righteousness. There has to be righteousness somewhere because i got to meet the standard or I'm doomed. And I don't have it. Where can I find it? That's what's supposed to happen in the law. And then it points ahead to the one who is the end of the law, Christ. That takes us to our second observation. The first point, though, place no hope whatsoever in your own righteousness. Not proudly, boastfully, and not in despair either. On neither extreme. Instead, here's the second observation. Cast all hope on the grace of God in Christ. Cast all hope on the grace of God in Christ. That's where righteousness is found. I find this passage... I'm, I'm trying to prepare to preach this passage. I've got a lot going on on my mind this week. And one of the recurring thoughts is, Oh God, let me do justice to this chapter. I'm sure partially because I have sinful pride and I want to do a good job, but partially because this is something glorious. This is an amazing chapter. I find it to be simply a marvelous, beautiful expression of the grace of God. If you have eyes to see it, this Old Testament passage in the law that is shot through with massive amounts of of clear, condemning statements. You are rebellious, stubborn, provoking to wrath, etc., etc., about to destroy him, accuses the people of all kinds of stuff. It is a ringing testimony to the grace of God, if you have eyes to see it. It's amazing. It's amazing. I hope you see it and marvel at it. This is the gospel of God's grace in Deuteronomy 9, of all places. God is aroused to wrath, The people are locked in rebellion. The covenant lies shattered right before them. And what does God do? He listens to an intercessor and makes another covenant with them. And brings them into the land anyway. Amazing! It's amazing. I'm not seeing enough amazed looks. It's amazing. (laughs) It is astounding and marvelous and inexplicable. He declares he's going to destroy those nations and then says, you're just like him, but I'm not going to destroy you. Instead, I'm going to deliver you and bring you in. It's amazing. 
In the words of verse 27, he does not regard the stubbornness of the people or their wickedness or their sin. He overlooks it when he shouldn't, but he does. He passes over their sin and powerfully delivers them into the promised rest. It is amazing grace which deserves an explanation. We can move off of verse 27 to get towards that explanation. And notice, he does not have grace on everybody. The people in Canaan that are just like the people in Israel, these people, he actually does pour out his wrath upon. And these people he has grace upon. What's the difference? These people are the one covered by the promise and interceded for by the intermediary. That's the difference. These people have a particular person who goes to God and pleads for their lives. And those people are connected to the promise of God. That's the difference. He has grace on them despite their sin. How does all that happen? Well, there are just a load of New Testament passages that could explain this, but I think a good place to start is Romans 3 and 4. Because in Romans 3.25, there's a statement there that sounds like what Moses prayed in verse 27 of our chapter. In Romans 3.25, Paul's discussing the cross of Christ and how on that cross, God's wrath against sin was satisfied. And he says, talking about how the, at the cross, the wrath of God was satisfied. And he says, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Like Moses prayed. Moses, in a sense, says, God... I know who they are. You know who they are. What I'm pleading with you, Father, is that you would pass over this sin and overlook it. And God might say to him, I, I can't just ignore it. I'm a just God. I'm a righteous God. I hate sin. I am rightly aroused. I can't just forget about it. And Moses then might say, if you knew all the future, can you pay for it somewhere else then? That I can do. I will be just and the one who justifies. Next verse in Romans 3. I will be just and the one who justifies. How? By placing that sin on Christ's cross. And so I reveal that I am in fact just, righteous, and I reveal also this is the righteousness that comes from God through faith in Christ, not from the law, where there isn't any. He passed over the former sins of his people so as to decisively deal with them at one point at the cross. And on the cross, his wrath is satisfied. His people arouse him to wrath from day one. And he looks at the cross and says, my wrath is satisfied. I have no beef with you. Instead, I can deal with you in grace. And that's what he does. 
Not because of their own righteousness, but because of God's provided righteousness. Not because they have a righteousness of their own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Philippians 3. Every single one of us, we must have righteousness to stand before God. We must have personal, clean, pure holiness. If we bring sin into the equation, His wrath will fall on us. We must be pure before Him. And that does not come from ourselves. It cannot happen from anything that we do or anything that we are. The only place from which it can come is God through Christ to those who believe. That's what Philippians 3 says. A righteousness from God that depends on faith. So to use this passage in the confrontational way, if you're here, if you're listening to this, I plead with you, do not trust in any supposed self-righteousness to make you right before God. You have none. But you can be right before God if Jesus' righteousness comes to cover you. And His righteousness will come to cover you and your sin will go rest on Him if you trust Him. If you believe. And if you do not, God's wrath remains upon you. There is a way to be justified. There is a way to be saved, to be forgiven. A way. Take Him up on the offer. Repent and turn to Him. Cast all of your hope on the grace of God in Christ, making you righteous in His eyes. And speaking of those of us who are Christians here this morning, do you see how, if you connect this back to the first observation, particularly the the despairing part, these things fit together. We are, are not to walk around and say, I think I did pretty well this week, so therefore I feel good about myself. I did poorly this week, so therefore I feel terrible about myself. What we are to say is, yes, I sinned this week. And I am, because of Christ and the grace of God in Him for me, I am righteous in God's eyes. I am His dearly beloved heritage. The one on whom His affection in bucket loads rests. The one with whom he deals always in grace. Yes, I sinned this week. In my mind, I consciously sinned more than I did last week. I unconsciously sinned a lot more than I know. But yeah, I consciously sinned. And so I go to him, my loving, gracious father, and say, Thank you for covering this sin. Will you please give me more grace to teach me to say no to this That I might walk in obedience, conform to your image, pleasing to you in that regard. Like you want me to be. I want to be that too. Would you give me grace? You you deal with him with with your sin like that, all the while thinking, 
I am his dearly beloved child. I'm not a failure. I'm not a loser. He doesn't think he made a mistake in claiming me. He isn't about to kick me out of the family. It, it really is, if you, if you preach this gospel to yourself, it is the antidote to much misery. It is the truth. God could not be any more pleased with you than he is right now. He's thrilled with you. He delights in you. Do you sin? Yes. Does he want to deal with that? Of course. But parents, you need to think no further than your own kids. Do your kids make mistakes? Do they sin? Sure, of course they do. Do you care about that? Of course you do. Do you want to work on it? Of course you do. Do you love them like crazy? Of course you do, I hope. I imagine. Would you die for them tomorrow even though they just stole, stole money off your dresser? Sure you would. Of course you would. We, we know that, but we often forget it in the midst of our, our failing as judged by our trying to be righteous in our own eyes. You've got to preach to yourself that He looks on me as His dearly beloved. And for the sake of His name, He is not going to abandon me. He has begun a good work in me, has staked His name to me, and will carry it on to completion. I'm His. Hallelujah. And from that, then I can work on my sin. Accepted. Not about to be booted out. There, a lot of misery comes from trusting in your own righteousness. And a lot of relief and joy comes from trusting in His righteousness. So brothers and sisters, don't cast any hope whatsoever on your own righteousness, but rather hope only in the grace of God in Christ. He makes you righteous. Because of Him, He pours out blessing on you. And you are loved. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.